0: Of your company and thanks for joining what is the second Light Talk podcast release. I'm really, really pleased this week to be joined by one of the heroes on the front line in the fight against COVID 19, uh, NHS healthcare warrior, passionate vegan, and my old sparring partner, uh, Ashley Meads. Ash, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, I think, I think the first thing to say, without wishing to cause you to cringe, much if I may um is thank you you know we are all grateful uh for the efforts of you and your colleagues the support the care that you're giving us despite the risks you continue to have uh, against your own well-being and health uh, in order to combat the virus so, so you know personally and, and I'm sure most people listening um are hugely grateful for the work that you do now and have always done um thank I think you. the first question really is how are things feeling on the front line in the fight against Covid-19? Um, still very unknown. Um,
1: I think we've been incredibly lucky down in the southwest to have really low rates compared yeah. to some of the other regions in the country. So we're in a very odd situation that very quickly our trust reacted to the potential threat and we changed a lot about the hospital and the way that we're working. So we closed an awful lot of wards. We've moved some services off site. So things like our oncology, cancer care has gone off site to keep those patients safe. Our minor injuries unit moved from our emergency department off site to keep that area clear. Lots of wards are doing, looking after different types of patients that they would normally. So there's surgical wards looking after medical patients and vascular patients on cardiology wards and all sorts of weird and wonderful things have been happening so that's been a big period of change and adjustment for lots of people um, and then we've kind of been waiting for this huge wave of of really poorly COVID-19 patients to come um and it hasn't really ever happened to us in the way that we kind of expected I think we upped our intensive care capacity to about 200 and at a peak, we've had 20. So wow. it's it's been really unusual. Um, but everyone's initially was very scared. And there was lots of questions, especially around PPE. You know, we've seen that mm. massively in the news about PPE. Um, but the, the struggle for us wasn't necessarily getting hold of PPE. It was the changes in guidance that came from the government on a daily basis. So... Mm. When we first started this crisis and we first got cases notified in the area um the guidance was full ppe that you know like you'd see on tv in the intensive care units so full gowns mm-hmm. masks eyeglasses visors the lot for every patient that was even suspected of having COVID. um mm-hmm. and then so that's what we were doing and we were you know i was going into so my, my job essentially is to provide services to the doctors that they wouldn't have time to do themselves. So things like blood tests, cannulations, ECGs, catheterization, things like that. So i would be going in to do these procedures on patients that were suspected COVID in all of that gear um, and then taking it all straight back off again. Um, which is quite a big drain on resources if I'm doing that for sort of 15 or 20 people in a row. And mm. um, then almost overnight, the guidance changed then to if they were suspected, but not confirmed. And we were to wear just glove, aprons and a surgical mask um, mm. and, and until they were confirmed. And then we would go to the full PPE. And then it changed to just the lighter PPE, even if they're confirmed, unless you're doing any sort of procedure that is likely to generate an aerosol. Mm -hmm. so things like intubating or doing suction um, or doing resuscitation those are the things that are going to turn those droplets into smaller particles that are going to spread but that all happened really quickly all of those changes from where everything to where hardly nothing happened over the course Mm -hmm. of about a week or two so Mm -hmm. people were very anxious about what they were wearing and who they were dealing with
0: Yeah, and I was just about to ask, you know, that must cause you a a personal, you know, and your colleagues, a personal level of anxiety because whether someone's confirmed or suspected, I don't want coronavirus. And if you've got vulnerable um, family, friends at home, anyone at home, to be honest with you, you don't want to be carrying that disease and then transferring it. So that must have made you feel incredibly anxious because there was still a likelihood that you could contract this disease absolutely and
1: the so the the anxiety is well i was wearing something that was very protective last week and this week i'm wearing something that's minimally protective so mm. what what's changed why is it changed and so that's what was causing a lot of anxiety and um, and just the, the speed in which it happened really was mm. was a concern
0: you, do you think that was because there was deemed to be a shortage and therefore the guidance was changed accordingly, or do you think that was just because the science had evolved? I feel like it's probably more to do with the science,
1: um, mm-hmm. and that's what I would hope, being, you know, mm-hmm. a science-driven sort of person, um, and mm-hmm. I, I don't like to say that, you know, look at failures or lackings to to. Notify change. Um, I think it was more to do with the science in that they've they isolated the fact that this is a droplet transmitted virus. So coughs, sneezes, talking, spitting, things like that are going to transmit it. So if you're facing a patient within two meters of them, what you need is the front of you protected. Whereas if you're in an environment such as an intensive care unit or a ward that is purely for COVID-19 patients then those droplets are going to naturally be all over the surface all over the air so you need better protection so uh, I I felt like it made sense to me once once I read into it and looked at looked at the science that's what made sense to me I don't think it was I don't I I don't feel like it was and I we didn't get the message that it was because of a lack of this PPE I okay. think it's uh, even in the, the first instance when we were using the, the two different types for two different types of patients, the thing that we were lacking more was the surgical these fluid resistant surgical masks that we now wear mm. all the time. Mm. Um, mm. but now we've got an abundance of them. I never I've never struggled to get a, a surgical mask to go and deal with a patient.
0: Okay. You mentioned, you know. We talked about PPE, um, and for me, I, I mean, I initially felt like <clears throat> the government, and I think you and I, for once, probably agreed politically, um, <laughs> that initially the government's response seemed to me to be science-driven, well-controlled, and relatively proactive. Um, I think the response has, you know, the, the the capability, the effectiveness of the response seemed to have deteriorated significantly um, as time has gone on. Uh, The PPE is is, uh, an example of that. There was just, there didn't seem to be a coherent answer to the questions being asked, different government ministers saying different things, government ministers saying there's a lack of availability, manufacturers saying we can manufacture them, but no one's returning our calls, essentially. Um, uh, And then we've had the piece around testing, around care home uh, testing, et cetera, et cetera, As someone on the front line, how have you found, generally speaking, the government's response? And do you think it's met its ambition of stopping COVID-19 from overwhelming healthcare? Um, Well, I think the the
1: evidence is the the bums on the seat, as it were, that uh, at some points, the tide has started to change now in that we're seeing regular admissions from Mm non-COVID-related cases increase. Whereas we're seeing yeah. COVID related admissions decrease. So mm-hmm. we're getting back to what I like to, you know, normal. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, the hospital was at 38% occupancy. So mm-hmm. whatever had been, do- had been done and the messages that had been put out to the public by the government had worked. We had, em- yeah. you know, near enough emptied our hospital, which for the last four years that I've worked in the trust, has been a one hundred and one, one hundred and two, up to one hundred and ten percent occupancy. So mm. the evidence to me is that yes, the, the government's response worked, and we've it look it's looking like we've stamped on the curve in quite a, a dramatic way to reduce the strain on the NHS. And I think they've the only the only criticism I could really do is that if anything, we've over prepared because we've got nightingale hospitals all over the country built at great expense that have got nobody in Um, and you know touch on wood that we're not going to need them and so the evidence that that kind of shows if anything that that we've we've done what the government set out to achieve I felt like Yeah. yeah there was unfortunately there was still some of the the same old political infighting all the time that drives me mental about politics, and um, that mm-hmm. it still seems, even in the face of a national crisis that we've not seen for generations, they still want to mm-hmm. score points, and that's what I think. Where the lack of coherence comes, and um, mm-hmm. the only the, the disappointment I felt was when this first started coming out, Matt Hancock, Health Secretary said we're really well prepared we've got all the stocks of everything we need there's no problems for that and um, we'll have every, all the ppe that's required we'll have all the resources we require and then you know two three months along the line it's now a, a, a and he's saying that it's a really big challenge and we you know we're ramping up production here there and there we're trying to get it in from different countries so i don't know how we've been over prepared in ways of ventilators, beds building huge hospitals and prepared in PPE when he said uniformly we're prepared and then especially when it comes to like that he's he's the managing director of the company that is set up to supply the PPE and um, that was a, <laughs> that was a bit of a well how can you be so sure you're prepared hopefully that's because you're in charge of the company that does it to oh mm-hmm. now suddenly we're not prepared um, and we need to do more on PPE and testing so there was a bit of a lack of what they said at the beginning to what they said when they were in it but I think that goes back to the the politicians wanting to look good and you know present a positive image but in general
0: yeah
1: yeah in general it's been I think response and from a lifelong green straight Labour voter it's I've been infinitely impressed with the government
0: mm-hmm.
1: Boris Johnson included. Yeah, I, think, I think it's been brilliant
0: no that's interesting here and I, and I agree with you on almost every point you make about mm. Hancock um and and the kind of using this as a political tennis ball seems to have happened more recently. Mm. I I think think you and I may have discussed this in some way, shape or form. I felt early on during the crisis, and far be it from me to ever give Jeremy Corbyn any credit for anything, um, but I felt that he, when he was running the Labour Party at the beginning of this crisis, and and John McDonnell is, is kind of de facto number two, with the Prime Minister, Sadiq khan Mary London, I felt they were all being really, really grown up at that stage. Mm. There didn't appear to be a great deal of posturing. Of course, the challenge is the political landscape's changed, doesn't it? So yeah. in that time, we've had a new lead, Labour leader. He's probably left with the conundrum of, well, I can't sit here and say bloody nothing, mm. but I don't want to be seen to be using this terrible, terrible set of circumstances as a political opportunity. That's quite a challenging game for him. Yeah. Um, Additionally, Tory health secretaries never last very long in my Mm. experience. I'm I'm reminded of Andrew Lansley under David Cameron, which was an absolute car crash. Mm. I think Jeremy Hunt was pretty well despised from beginning to end. (laughs) Yeah, the junior doctor's debacle. Um, Whatever your view on the content of that, he handled it terribly. Mm. And Matt Hancock will have that playing on his mind. The trouble is, to your point, he hasn't doesn't appear to have been entirely honest, and I don't think that will have helped him. Right? No, I, I agree. Um, in in terms of, uh, I'm just interested in your point around you know you've been, been relatively uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I think fair to say you you're left leaning in your Absolutely. in your politics and yeah. your ideology. Um, has this changed your perception generally of? the Tory government approach to healthcare, because because I, and I'm not Tory anymore, don't think I ever will be, in terms of an active member of the Tory party, but one of the things I used to encounter on the doorstep all the time, and, and it used to frustrate the hell out of me, is things like, Tories want to sell off the NHS, Tories want to privatise the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't necessarily want to open those options, um, but <clears throat> the Tories have never been trusted with the NHS. Boris Johnson won the last election with two key messages. Number one was get Brexit done. The other one was um, about the NHS. Those were the two topics that he talked about and and that, you know, he was the kind of basis of his campaign. Um, Do you think, and I'm thinking about him specifically and maybe the Tory party secondary, secondarily, sorry. Do you think that this will change the perception of, the Tory party's approach to managing the NHS? Will they no longer be as mistrusted as they have been?
1: So I think you've done incredibly, definitely the right thing there is to separate the Prime Minister from the party. And I think Boris Johnson's approach to the NHS is very different. And I think this has been illustrated by COVID-19 to the Tory party's approach to the NHS. And I think the difference is, and the the reason I can get behind Boris Johnson a bit more is although he's all of the things I despise about party politicians in that he's privately educated and all of those things, he's not Mm. made a career for himself out of of business and enterprise and all of those things. He's a journalist. And so he spent an awful lot of his career speaking to people which a lot of politicians, unfortunately, don't spend a lot of their time doing. So in order to, to mm. be a successful journalist, you have to understand people because you have to write things that they're going to read. And if you don't write things they're going to read, then you're not going to get your articles published in papers. You're not going to make any money. So you know, he's mm. had to have an understanding of the British people and what people are interested in and where their, where their thoughts lie. In order to write appealing content, and so I think he's got a better understanding of where the land lies with the public's loyalty to the NHS, and so that's why he managed to angle it so well at this general election in order to win that victory. I, the, the, you know, my criticisms of the Tory Party have always been just that: is that they are very, very much capitalist-minded, and that profit becomes before people. And I don't think there's always anything wrong with capitalism in per se. I think, you know, people need jobs and in order to, to create jobs, you, you need to have money and you need to have people that are driven and ambitious to make money. And I think they deserve to make money if they've come up with good ideas. But I think with that needs to come some level of social responsibility so if you're a company making billions and billions of pounds off of a country and off of its people, then maybe it'd be a good idea to put something back into them to sustain your business model. Because if you make billions of pounds, but all of the people in the country, the way you make those pounds die because they haven't got a funded NHS, then what's what's the point? But uh,
0: And this is the challenge Richard Branson's currently yeah, having, isn't it, I think?
1: <clears throat> absolutely. And I think things like you know, Richard Branson looking at where he is now and all of these massive companies that we think are these huge giants of enterprise, absolutely untouchable, the position they're in now and how they are, you know, these big companies are viewed as heroes and the NHS is the little man and how that is now flipped in this current climate and, you know, the NHS getting clapped on doorsteps and Richard Branson's asking for money. So it's, it's it, that's interesting, and that shows the fragility of privatising an NHS. Because do, do you,
0: what happened? Do you think the Tories? Sorry, oh, sorry to cut across you. Do you think the Tories? Do you think the Tories have embarked on this mass privatisation of the NHS, or do you think? Do you think people consider outsourcing to private suppliers? as being privatisation. And I, I I speak about this with a, a little bit of knowledge, nowhere near right. as advanced as yours, but I work in um, facilities management, mm. which uh, essentially, I think at Derriford Hospital, you probably use Serco, um, who maybe deliver your catering or your portage. until last year. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so I work for an organisation like mm. Serco, um, no, on, a, on a private uh, organization, or public sector organization. But but I know, having worked for G4S at the Met Office, for example, I think I'm allowed to talk about this because I won't give any details. About it. But I know that because, because the Met Office focus is about forecasting mm. and environmental change and improvement, they would much rather spend their time focusing on that very subject. And the idea that they would employ a specialist to deliver those FM non-core services, because it's their core business, because they have a good idea of how good services should look and can be run in an effective way, actually that's a situation where the employment of a private contractor has paid dividends because in doing that they probably haven't been wasteful with their building maintenance strategy and they've saved a bit of money. Do you think there is a place for outsourcing or do you consider that to be soft privatization?
1: I think it like, exactly like you said. It depends on the service and what you're outsourcing. And um, so you very very rightly, up until October of last year, Serco did manage all of our what we call hotel services. So catering yeah. a lot of portering, um, linen management, all of those kind of you know very much like ho- you know hotel services. Um, However, that was their contract was up for review in October, and they mm. didn't renew the contract. And so the NHS, mm. the NHS didn't renew the contract, and we have then taken all of those staff and all of those services back under the NHS management. And yeah, I, I think all the, the NHS is different. It's a very difficult. Thing to describe what it's like to work in, and, and what you know what we do, everyone sees as you know get people better. But there's a lot of other things in a hospital that happen, and yeah. the, the the main priority is delivering excellent patient care, and that's what we we are experts yeah. at. Is in everything we do, we are focused and driven by the patient and never in my job have Mm -hmm. I ever had to think about oh is is what I'm going to do today going to be within budget or if could I potentially I don't know use a cheaper brand of cannula is that going to be better I've never had to think about anything Mm -hmm. like that I've never had to think about targets or statistics or money at all because all we have to think about on the front line as it were is delivering brilliant patient care and I think that is what is, you know, in hotel services. So are we giving them brilliant meals? Mm-hmm. Are they enjoying their food? Are we, you know, transferring them from A to B in the hospital efficiently and nicely and in a dignified manner? And so they're all things that we can mm-hmm. do as an NHS. And I think there are some things that, yes, it's brilliant to get an expert in that is, that is able, well-versed in that field the problems with privatization in the NHS are things that we already were doing that because we don't have the funding and capacity to do, they then, and we, the demand way outstrips what we're capable to a a private company pops up and says, well, we'll do it. And we'll just charge you this much. So for example, if you're 65 years old and you've worked in construction all your life, um and because of your hard job you've knackered both of your knees you know both your knees need replacing they're painful every day it takes you an hour to get out of bed all of those things but other than your knees you're perfectly healthy you would probably wait a matter mm. of years to get those replaced on the nhs but you can still get it done on the nhs but it'd be done at, rather than being done at Durford hospital it'd be done at the peninsula and the peninsula will charge Dereford mm. hospital to do that operation so they're not no. going to do it unless they're making a profit from it whereas the NHS would do it without making mm. a profit so there's going to be more spent on that knee operation than there would have been if it was done at our hospital using our surgeons our equipment and our nurses so that's where the problem mm. that's where I have a problem with privatization and. Um, it's not because they're better at it. It's just because they can do it. It's this and, and often times, mm-hmm. you'll have if you ha- went to Dereford on a Wednesday and had your knee operation, then you'd have, you know, one do- uh, your anesthetist, a surgeon, three scrubs, nu- scr- scrub nurses, etc., doing that operation. If you went on a Thursday, you might have the, exactly the same team, but working at the Peninsula on their day off. As agency or mm. over time was locum, and that you had in Derriford. so it's the same people, it's the same team, it's just a different building, um, provided by a yeah. company, and so they're, they're not doing anything different to what we did. They're not. You're not getting a, a gold standard. You're, you're getting exactly the same knees as you would get if you got them done on the in an mm. NHS building. It's just done at a different place with a you know. So there's benefits to the NHS for that. That It lowers our patient load. So we have less patients in the hospital um, because they're looked after off-site. Mm. So we can focus on more sicker people that need those operations. So if you had the, if you needed that knee operation but you've got kidney failure, then we would do it so that we can look after you better. So it helps us in, the, in ways mm. like that. But it's these things that slowly but surely it gets to the point that what have we got left what is the nhs then yeah. if you know all of our elective orthopedics are being done off site most of our cardiology um diagnostics are done off site by different companies if you need a, a heart scan um, if you need a a heart tracing that you wear for like seven days to see what your heart's doing over seven days that's done off by a different company and it's, you know, there's lots of things that are done by these private companies that you wouldn't necessarily notice if it wasn't for the fact that you just walked into a different building. Um, I had to have an, yeah. an MRI mm-hmm. of my head done a, a little while ago. That got done off-site by the peninsula. So it's all these things that keep, you know, slowly but surely are being done by private companies. No different to if the NHS did mm-hmm. them. Of the slow yeah. And the only thing, the problem with it is that, for example, with my, my MRI of my head, I had to ring two separate places to get the results because the private company mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily straight away forthcoming giving the results to the NHS. So it just causes mm-hmm. communication problems and all different sorts of issues as well. So it just, what I wonder mm. is that if we allow this to keep happening, what are we going to have left?
0: Yeah, yeah, where's where's end? End? yeah and what, what do
1: we have left? And I always, it always comes back to mm. the same thing, that if you're doing something driven by profit, then are you going to do it the same as if you, you didn't have to think about that? And I think... <laughs> If we put yeah. the correct funding into the NHS, so that we didn't ha- we, we had the capacity to do those things, I think we probably wouldn't need to fracture it all off and and sell it, sell our services to, to different people.
0: And and, and, and <clears throat> I was it was on the tip of my tongue in the last point you make, and it's it's a, an internal battle I have regularly as a as a free market capitalist. Is I want an element of I want an element of not competition in the NHS, but, but uh, external expertise. But to your point about the mm. peninsula, and that is essentially an extension of the mm. hospital, the answer surely is just improve the bloody capacity Absolutely. of the hospital rather than pay an external supplier. And, and with that example, you've sort of transformed the way I look at this. Um, I think th- the last point around, yeah, uh, private, private profit, profit, um, or using healthcare, and what are most of the time terrible circumstances to generate a profit is is on some moral level hmm. challenging uh, I, uh, for me, I, I, and I haven't got an answer to that. You know, it, and I think this is where the Tory party. Um, have gone wrong, if we link it back to the earlier point we made where we separated your review of Johnson and the Tory party. The Tory party is died in the wall capitalism mm. from top to bottom. And like everything in life, capitalism and public service management are nuanced, mm. aren't they? So just because cap- capitalism works doesn't mean it works best in every circumstance, in every organization. Actually, things are nuanced and different things apply in different ways. And I think on the basis of that brilliant and, and powerful insight you've just given, you know, I, I understand where I've probably been going wrong all of these years and saying, well, I don't understand the issue of outsourcing. But to your point, it's direction of travel. It's the idea that their principle for being there is not around the provision of care; it's around the generation of mm. margin, of money, of revenue. Um, so, so there's a immediately there's a conflict there because I don't genuinely believe you can have both of those things at the forefront of your mind. And secondly, I think I'd much rather. Um, see the money that we are currently spending to the peninsula to private suppliers to, to, to deliver certain aspects of medical care, certain aspects of health care, uh, and just spend that money on expanding yeah. the NHS, because actually, that is better for us all, because, because it will address this issue of morale in the NHS, because they won't feel necessarily like, in that respect, things are being fragmented, but they will feel a little bit more respected, because they become the kind of master of all trades. Um, uh, and and actually, as a as a patient, my experience end to end is all driven by exactly the same mindset and the exactly the same objective, which is patient care, care, Absolutely. not private profit. So, so yeah, you, brilliant point, really brilliant point. What's um? I, I, let's say I appointed you next week. I became prime minister, leader of the Tory Party. Never going to happen, <laughs> especially after what I just said. Uh, and I appoint you. As, Special mm. advisor, what would what would be your one key piece of advice to the Tory Party to improve perceptions on how it manages health? Fund it,
1: you know, and I, I think you need to separate the NHS from politics completely. It it needs to be great, its absolutely. own entity, and it needs if you you, you need to decide on day one do you want an NHS? Not, I want an NHS for this, but not for that. Or I want an NHS for some people, but not for others. You need to decide whether you want an NHS. And if you want an NHS, then you have an NHS, but it has whatever it needs to function. And so that's what you do. Or you decide, actually, no, that's not a model that works. Now we're going to go for something else. And that's fine. You go ahead and you do that. But if you want an NHS, then it needs to be exactly that. It shouldn't should never be any costs incurred. There should never be any issue getting access to what you need. But I think you also need to look at what is realistic and what we can and can't we can't offer on the NHS. I don't I think there are a lot of and it, it, you know, this is where my controversialness like, point comes in. There are a lot of things that mm. we offer, that we, uh, there are lots of people that we look after in the NHS that might mm. be better suited by um, a private supplier that, that, that wants to offer them. And there would be things like um, bariatric mm. surgery, so that's a lifestyle driven Mm -hmm. thing you there's very few medical conditions that cause somebody to become obese um and to Mm -hmm. the point that they require a surgery to reduce that obesity so that could be something that Mm -hmm. a company like you know the peninsula could offer you can pay to have that done um and People mm. need to, if we decide as a country that we want an NHS, then we need to support it by living a lifestyle that is sustainable because the amount of things that mm. we see in the hospital that could have been avoided by living a healthy lifestyle are huge. The vast amount of, of patients, and not just in the NHS, in, in healthcare all over the world, they are in, they're in hospital frequently for things that they've done to themselves such as smoking, you know, eating an unhealthy diet, living a sedentary lifestyle, you know, these are all things that people have have made a conscious choice to do. Um, And as a result Mm -hmm. of these choices they've made, they are in a position that they require frequent healthcare. And I don't always know if that should be something that is publicly funded because what the message we're sending then is, it's okay to smoke, It's okay to eat McDonald's Mm. four times a day, every day. It's absolutely Mm. okay to get no exercise at all in your lifestyle because the NHS will just look after you when you're sick. And I don't know if that's what we should do. So I think, yes, if you need to from day one decide, do we want a nationally funded healthcare service? Yes. Then we need to set people's expectations of that. And we will fund it with everything it needs and give it all the support to look after people in their time of need. However, you need to help us by, by living a lifestyle that is sustainable. And if you, if you don't do that, then there needs to be a look at your contribution to the LHS. And, 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 you know, Mm. look at think about things realistically would, you know,
0: and that's the, the, the point you make around mm. smoking, for example, again, it, if if we refer back to the Tory party of whom mm. I, I was a member of which I was a member and, and fond of in many ways, that there's another paradox because your your the free market capitalist side of you says uh, 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 allow organizations to be innovative if there is a corner in the market, for or there's demand in the market for cigarettes um, allow that to happen because it creates job it creates growth it adds mm. to the economic cycle however those costs they don't necessarily no. stack up do they if there are significant costs to the health care system and the taxpayer so so these are all of the things I think that the Tory party has to kind of look in the mirror on they have to have an honest conversation with themselves to say look we almost need to redefine completely Mm. our view on the NHS because because you know what, if it is, if it is, I don't know, privatise and sell half of it off, come out and say that. Um, I don't think it will will improve your electoral chances, but come out and say that. If, if it's not, if you genuinely want to, to tackle the issues with the health service around underfunding, staff morale, et cetera, then set a very clear framework, yeah. but be ruthless in that framework and say, look, there are things that you're no longer going to be able to get on the NHS because it's a lifestyle mm, change you have made. And I think as well, the
1: big thing that we need to change is the way that we fund the NHS because national insurance pay- contributions have only ever helped one group of people. And they were the first people to ever use the NHS. So since then, we've been paying the debt of our parents. So you, you need to always we need to rethink how we are funding this. And I think most people, I, I feel like most people, if you said to them, "We're going to charge you more tax, and it's going to be this much," mm-hmm. but that is purely for the NHS, and it doesn't go to anything else. It's literally. know your contribution to the NHS and it be means tested all of those things the same as taxes then that's great and I think you also need to look at companies that are making huge profits from the UK and the people of the UK and say they have given you a better lifestyle than you could ever have imagined your children their grandchildren etc will have plush lifestyles because of the the income that has been generated off this country so pay a little bit back and do that by providing a Mm. national health service what better thing could you give people of the you know how better could you pay back your customers and also that makes good business sense because you're going to have customers Mm. around because they'll be well healthy and you know supported um in order to access your your products
0: Well, when I reach the lofty heights, of it, um, you'll be the first one to call. I promise. Um, that, that was really interesting, Thanks. I want to briefly move on to um, yeah. the subject of veganism. Um, uh, and we've sparred over this uh, for uh, I, I yeah. think about five years now. Um, and and increasingly, I find myself losing the argument. So I, I did a bit of mm. research, uh, as you might expect. Um and you know veganism is yep. is on the on the increase right it's it's exploding all over the world more people are becoming vegan every single day um i think this year that there's something around 200 000 people yep. have taken part in veganuary so those yep. will be people who aren't vegans or were not vegan start of uh, January, if you scroll quicker, I see more than a quarter of, quarter of a million tags on Instagram for things like Veganuary um, uh, and, and you know, uh, different articles associated mm. with Veganuary. Um, so clearly you are part of a massive movement, a massive shift in our attitude, and people like me are increasingly mm. losing the argument. And we'll come on to why. Before before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts, just, just tell us why are you a vegan? Um, what makes you want to be a vegan? I didn't ever want to be a vegan. Um,
1: it was the last thing. Was, I remember. Yeah. I remember growing was oh, the furthest away from a vegan and, you, you know, could just, think of. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I grew up as my dad's a chef, and would bring home mm-hmm. incredible joints of meat and cook us you know the best steaks and fish especially seafood things like that that you could ever imagine he brought me up to you know appreciate all the different types of cheese and he you know when I was about seven years old he taught me to cook the five mother sauces the French mother sauces and most of that none of those are vegan and um, everything very heavy cream I was very very far away from veganism and um, until mm-hmm. I met somebody that I worked with um who was a very, very passionate vegan. And I, very much like you, wanted to argue that full full throttle, and I did. And it was a perfect excuse for me to avoid doing a job I didn't really like doing anyway. So instead of picking up the phone and, and trying to sell <laughs> advertising to people, I'd argue with her. And I quickly, I ran out of arguments. I just ran out of, of information that I'd reached the, the end of my knowledge and so I went away and did some research, and the research that I did because I'm 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 a kind of person that if I want to know about something, I want to know everything about it, and I want to be an expert in it. And the research that mm-hmm. I did, trying to be as broad and as you know, look at every angle of it, is like it turned me vegan. In that I reached a point at about five o'clock in in the morning one morning where. I, I realised that my moral position, say, don't be cruel to animals, was opposed to my moral actions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there was a contradiction in what I thought and how I felt as to what I did. And, oh, right, I wasn't the one going out and putting a bolt gun through a cow's skull, but I was paying somebody to do it for me on a regular basis um, and then very much enjoying the fruits of their labour. And so I felt suddenly incredibly morally hypocritical. And that is a position that I couldn't remain in. So, I, eight years ago. How many years well, ago? Eight that? years in June, maybe. So, okay. I felt like, do I change my morals and the way I feel? So, do I try and convince myself that it's okay to hurt animals? or do I change the way I act and Mm -hmm. it's much easier and much much I think more just to change the way you act than it is to change your morals and and so that's that's how it went and Mm -hmm. so I got up that next day and said to my wife well I've gone vegan a year and she said yep I'll go I'll go with that and so we emptied the cupboards Took all the non-vegan food round to my in-laws and went shopping. That we've never looked back, because to me, I now mm. can't view that stuff as food, as a source of nourishment, because it's the product of, of a moral justification to me. So yeah, just, yeah.
0: So I, I want to explore. Um... Your, your earlier comment. So you said I was in a position where I, my, my kind of default view mm. was I don't like cruelty to animals, but actually uh, I, yeah. I my eyes were opened, essentially, and I realised that whilst I might not have been directly inflicting yeah. pain, I was paying others to do it, bulk yeah. guns in heads of, of, of cattle. Well, and, and I'll be honest, whenever you have challenged me and others have challenged me on this point, I, I, I always stumble because I consider myself to be... Mm a massive lover of animals. Yeah. Dogs are fucking amazing. Um, yeah. Cats are fucking amazing. And I, I I believe genuinely that a dog is worth as much as a pig, yeah. a cat is worth as much as a can, but not enough to change my position. Why are there so many people like me who say, no, I do love animals, but but I can't quite love them enough to stop eating them? because I'm, I'm aware how hypocritical i am when i say i love Ooh. animals so well, i can't love animals because i eat them um fact but it's it's a very difficult cycle to break why do you think and and you will have had this discussion more than me why do you think so many people struggle to overcome because that, they
1: are that valuing paradox? taste and personal satisfaction and enjoyment over the life of an innocent animal it's as simple as that so do you value your personal satisfaction and your personal enjoyment of a, a slice of cow more than you value the life of that cow, and if the answer is yes, I do, then that's that's why you're not vegan. But if you, you know, and that's why, you know, mm. there's many vegan activists out there that will, their sole goal is to make the world vegan. But you're never going to do that. Like I've had at depth, long mm. conversations with my with my dad about this, and he says it's very simple i know exactly how they're killed i've been to the abattoirs i've watched them i've been to farms i to source all of my own meat for when i cooked in a restaurant i used to go to the farm myself pick the cow take it to the abattoir if i had to get it killed and cook it the next day you know or whatever the process went but so and he said and i value the taste of that steak more than i taste i value the life of that animal so you're never going to change that person's mind and mm. you know the reason a lot of mm. vegans get a bad name is because they will try and you've got to realize sometimes that there's no point in that yeah and when it that's what it all just boils down to yeah. is if you value the life of an animal that does not want to die more than you you value the taste and enjoyment that you get from that animal then you should be vegan mm. and if you don't mm. then you shouldn't it's 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 as simple as that. I, uh,
0: I I talk about this, or I have talked about it a lot, as i found myself losing the argument in, in <laughs> recent years. I've, I've kind of stopped talking about it um, because people losing the argument. Um, and I suppose I'm guilty, mm. probably, of just brushing it under the carpet. Um, but when I have mm. the conversation with people, meat eaters, um when we get onto the subject of veganism, I, I get the same response pretty much every time. Well yeah, but I only yeah. organic eggs, I only uh uh meat which was yeah. farmed uh uh humanely and killed humanely. Is there a you humane tell me. way you, you can you tell me kill so an
1: you know what what is the humane way? So humane is you know the, the absence of cruelty isn't it? The you know the absence of, of suffering Mm, i i don't know if there is i'd really would Mm. you know i'm interested to know but i don't think there is a humane or a way of killing something without its suffering and i always make this conclusion uh, this comparison say say if tomorrow i decided that i was going to kill you that's it tomorrow you're going to die all right so i can either just Mm. shoot you in the head no (laughs)
0: <laughs> you wouldn't be the first but to have that thought I could either <laughs> just come up and shoot you
1: in the head and which point you would have the suffering of being really yeah. scared that someone's coming towards you with a gun you'd have the fear and the panic and all of the thoughts about my family and my children what's going to happen and bang you're dead or I could come up to you and say look I'm going to kill you today mm-hmm. but first here's your favourite meal, watch your favourite film, say goodbye to all your friends and family I'm going to run you a really nice bath. You can have everything you want. Like, you know, make it the best day of your life. And then I'm going to shoot you in the head. Does it make it mm. any better that I've shot you in the head? Mm. For for really no reason at all, other than I'm mm. going to enjoy it. Because that's the only reason mm. we eat meat and we eat dairy mm. and animal products at all is because we enjoy it. There's, there's no other justification. The, on- the only valid justification is because I enjoy it. Everything else, when it comes to nutrition, anything like that, can all be thrown out because I've lived for eight years perfectly healthily. Like you know, I've got two children that have grown up vegan. There's there's no there's no other reason other than I enjoy it. When you come down to it, so you know, is which one would you prefer? Neither of them are good, are not they? <laughs> in the end of it, both both times you get shot in the head. No, so no. whether it's organic, whether it's free range, whether it's grass fed, yeah whether it's any of those things, it doesn't really make a difference because the end result is the same and both ways cause suffering. Probably the same amount of suffering in the end, so. And, you know, it's, it's, oh, I, it's a difficult
0: one. I want to explore, no, no, I agree. It is a difficult, well, well it is yeah. difficult unless you're a meat-eater. Um, but, but, but I, I think we are in a situation now where, like I say, I, I think yeah. veganism has increased by 150% in the last year or two. Um, we're in a position now where you either have to accept, to your earlier point, Yeah, I, I value the taste more than I value the life of the animal, or I don't. I don't, I don't and I mm. have to adopt that position because I still eat meat, despite all of the information I have, despite all of the evidence that that sits in front of me um uh, you you talked about um uh, the Mm. the idea that you can live perfectly healthy and you've lived perfectly healthy for years vegan Mm -hmm. you've got you've got a family children etc all of whom are vegan and happy uh, and well i am faced with and i've indeed i've made the argument myself in the past um again uh, as i've probably got older and, and learned to accept facts a little bit more I don't think I'd make that argument anymore but uh, I'm often faced with the, the statement well you've got to have an element we that? live in
1: 2020 in one of the most affluent countries in the world we're incredibly privileged two minutes away from my house I have access to two huge international supermarkets uh, as, as do most people um and i've access to a whole world of nutritious tasty delicious vegan food and i'm not talking necessarily about the vegan cheese the fake meats the you know veganized this the you know specially made for vegans this i'm i'm talking about just plants and you know fruits vegetables all of the things that we know are good for us that we're told throughout our lives to eat more of um they're all there on our doorstep Mm. so that you don't need an element of it in your diet there's there's no there's nothing that you can you can't get from plants that you get from meat everything that all every nutrient Mm. that is contained in a piece of meat has come from a plant all I'm doing is cutting out the middleman and you know it and by consequence Mm. the cruelty so you know people saying well there's so much iron in red meat you need re- you need red meat for iron well iron comes from yeah yeah
0: that's iron's it. always well, the argument red iron meat comes iron from green vegetables
1: the, the reason that there's a lot of iron in red meat is because they eat grass which is a green vegetable and they eat an awful lot of it so yeah. that's why there's by default there's a lot but if you ate the same amount of calories that's in 100 grams of steak of a, a leafy green vegetable you're going to get better iron and it's more bioavailable so your body breaks it down better and um, you're going to feel the benefits of it more um, because it's mm. not full of all of the other bad things that are in the meat so there's there's no there's no diet there's no medical condition that i'm aware of that requires you to eat an animal product we're the human body isn't built to live exclusively off meat. We're opportunist carnivores by nature. So, opportunist omnivores, sorry. So, if we happened to encounter a very easy meal that came from an animal, then we would have taken it. But we wouldn't have naturally expelled the calories mm. that we were required to chase and catch and kill an animal. We would, we're quite lazy people, we would have just gone and picked a handful of berries instead. So it's mm. you know, it's we, our bodies can digest mm. it, but they're not necessarily built to. So I don't think the statement of you need an element is is correct.
0: I am, no. um, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm a big fan of Piers Morgan's journalism generally, yeah, less so, I think, in, in recent weeks actually. Um. Uh, and, and he's been pretty vocal on the subject. Now, I think yeah. a lot of it is pantomime. If I'm honest with you, I don't think he generally believes no. um, some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth. Um, but he made a point. He made a point on veganism, um, and for <laughs> me, it was a bit of a ah. I've gotcha, I found the golden nugget. I found the argument, which was again quickly, quickly debunked. So his argument was uh, in in the farming of crops, for example, plants, etc thousands of critters are killed mice are killed when those crops are removed etc etc and I remember putting this point to you and and you 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 Mm. told me to to just stand back and take a breath and and we reviewed I think you showed me the definition of veganism and it was about what was reasonably practical so so and and I've encountered that argument lots of ah yeah but veganism isn't totally void of any cruelty to animals at all just talk so, to us about are that things practical that bit.
1: you you just can't avoid um or aren't reasonable or reasonably practicable to avoid um the biggest one is medicines mm. so every medicine that is sold in the uk mm-hmm. has been tested on an animal most paracetamol ibuprofen like common tablets are filled with lactose which obviously comes from from dairy so That's not reasonably practicable to avoid taking a medicine for the rest of your life because you'd just die. Most of us in the Western world, anywhere in the world, without some sort of medical intervention at one point or other in our lives would die. And that's not helping anyone. So that's not reasonably practicable to avoid medicines because of the, the animal welfare implication. What you can do is campaign for alternatives so you can say, well, actually, given the fact it's twenty twenty, do you need to test your new medicine on an animal, or could you use computer modelling? Could you use the available evidence mm. from similar medicines um, to skip that step, like they've done with the cosmetics industry? Next to nothing gets tested on animals now because they use mm. the information that's already available to skip that step. So you know that you. We can skip that. That That's, that's one thing it's not reasonably practicable to avoid. Yes, when you harvest a crop, there is going to be mm. some bykill kill from wild animals. However, it's not reasonably practicable for us to not mm. ever eat a, a vegetable again. But what I will say on that point is no. that what do animals that we eat, eat? They, they eat plants that are harvested yeah. for them to eat they they mm. eat a huge yeah, per absolutely. calorie they're eating a lot more than we're getting from them so if we if we skipped giving it to mm. them and just ate it ourselves we'd have to harvest less of it which would mean that we'd kill less so if we you know most of the mm. most of the crops that we grow in the world are fed to livestock animals which we then eat so if we skipped giving it to livestock animals and just ate it ourselves or used the land to grow something that we would eat because nobody's going to eat tons of animal feed for dinner, that's not, that's not reasonable. But yeah, we could use that land to grow things that we would eat. So therefore killing less less by, by killing.
0: Okay. Okay, uh, and, and that's really helpful. And I, again, it's a point that it, it's pretty inarguable, you know. And and all of this comes back to the same point: you have to decide whether you value your experience, your taste, mm. um, over the life of, of an animal. J- just one final question for me: um, you are quite openly critical of um, vegan activists who take things too far. So there's a town in. There's a town in Dorset called Wool, and there was a, a campaign to have the, the name of the town changed to Vegan Wool. And I remember you saying, "Yeah, yeah, exactly." Cool. This is the problem with veganism. Um, what, what, what does veganism need to change to win over more people? Because mm. because I, I think I could probably be won over, um, uh, but but I am, and others like me will be more put off by that kind of level of excessive overstep and overreach. What does what does the veganism well, movement need to the, do the first point is to win more the people? The first thing to consider is, just
1: because you change the way that you live and you change to make your morality act up with uh, match up with your actions doesn't mean you join some sort of club or cult. So just because you stop eating animal products, stop wearing animal products and stop mm. using things that are tested animals where reasonably practicable doesn't mean that you have to wear a badge, read, you know, like join a club, attend meetings, um, and all sing from the same hymn sheet. It's not like joining a political party. It's not like, anything else it's just changing the way that you live to match your morals that's all it is so don't you know nobody should be off put by other vegans when they decide themselves to live a vegan lifestyle but i think the vegan move like a lot of anything that anyone gets passionate about ever people are going to take too far and I think, yeah yeah the example mm-hmm. you used of changing the name of a town yeah. because it's not vegan don't be dumb like all you're going to do is annoy people you're not going to save any animal's Mm. life by changing the name of a town and you're not going to get anybody on your side Mm. by being argumentative or judgmental or critical of anybody the only way that you're ever going to get anybody to think remotely like you is to educate them and that's how I came to veganism is because I became educated on the topic and that's the only way that you're ever going to get anybody on side it's the old thing of you know if you wanted someone you want someone to do something something make it think it's that make them think it was their own idea so you know make them think that they thought of it first make them think that they Mm. came to that that conclusion by themselves and Mm. they're much like more likely to adapt it it's Mm. the same thing so you're never going to argue somebody into going all right all right okay i won't eat it anymore Mm. That's never going to happen. But you can educate them to get to no. the point where they think I don't want no, to no, no. anymore.
0: And that's- no, I agree. I agree, and, and and I would also add, you know, that come on to podcasts and and use Ampedia, media platforms yeah. to have these kind of sensible conversations. Um, and and similarly, I would say to people who are who are vehemently anti-vegan just just have have a a grown-up conversation and deconstruct everything down to because nobody is actually forcing you to to stop eating meat it's your right to eat meat as it currently stands if you want to you've just got to make the decision and actually if you make the decision that i value taste more than i do the life of said animal then uh, that's that's a decision you have to make and live with doesn't necessarily affect the rest of us so um no look actually it's been it's been great it's been probably one of the most conversations I've no, had you're a few years. so thanks ever so much for coming on thank you so much for the work that you're doing uh in the health service and and you know mm appreciation for the health service has grown um yeah. in this period of time i only hope we sustain it because whether it's coronavirus yeah. or, or supporting my elderly grandmother have a hip replacement it's it all making the life of people everywhere better more comfortable um, uh, and generally improving me. lifestyle so thanks ever so much and hope thanks you then it- bye-bye thanks ash